Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Schaefer's Market Mashup. This is your host, Patrick Martin. Thank you so much for tuning in last week to my interview with Tony Batista of TastyTrade.com. Uh, you guys are in luck. I I don't want to brag, but I'm on a bit of a hot streak right now as far as guests are concerned. This week, I have not one, but two incredibly brilliant and esteemed guests on from the SIBO Global Markets. John Hyatt and Kevin Davitt. How are you guys? I am great, John. That was some high praise. Are we comfortable with that? <laughs> yeah, I think he set the bar a little bit too high in my case. But uh... Me too. We'll lower it. Oh, nonsense. Nonsense. Well, anyway, we're going to be talking all things SIBO today. And for the uninitiated, which includes myself, uh, the CBOE Global Markets is one of the world's largest exchange holding companies that offers cutting-edge trading and investment solutions to investors around the world. It offers a diverse range of products in multiple asset classes and geographies, including options, which, you know, as you know, we like, futures, U.S. and European equities, exchange-traded products, global foreign exchange, and volatility products based on the CBOE Volatility Index, ticker VIX. Um, so it's recognized as the world's premier gauge of U.S. equity market volatility, which volatility, that's what we're going to be diving into today. How did I do? Did I do a pretty good job of outlining that? I think you did really well. Oh, thank I you. I wouldn't change a thing. I would become a big, important, powerful company. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, but first, I want to open up to you guys. Do you want to give a quick introduction to yourselves, your title, anything the listeners might want to start with? Uh, Kevin, I'll start with you. Sure. Uh, so I will spare you the full retrospective and uh, give you the cliff notes, which is how I got through college. Little joke there. I have been in the derivative business for uh, a little over the past two decades. I have I spent a number of years trading, and for the past five years, I have been very fortunate to be a part of SIBO Global Markets. I work in the education arm of the exchange, which is referred to as the Options Institute. We have a great team um, where we advocate for the informed use of derivative tools and we get in front of a wide variety of audiences to uh, to educate and and explain the use cases for uh, for derivatives generally. Thank you for for having us today. Awesome, awesome, John. What do you got? Yes, so I've worked for SIBO uh, spent my entire career there about twenty six years now. Um, the large portion of it in what uh, we refer to as uh, new product development, uh, coming up with ideas like. Derivatives on the VIX. Um, the group right now is referred to as multi-asset solutions, and I work in the research and new product development area, trying to come up with new ways to trade different derivative exposures. Awesome. Great. So you guys sent over some fascinating graphs that I cannot stop looking at. One, because they're interesting. Two, because it took me a while to finally figure them out. Um, 
volatility right now is slightly above its historical average uh, and you know has come down from its previous highs. What is CBOE's take on this unprecedented market volatility we have seen in the past six months? Uh, Kevin, I'll give you that question. All right. Well, I think it's it's a, a great question. I'm glad that you sort of appreciate the, the visual. I don't know if that's something you share with your guests, but um, I think maybe the right way to start is to point out what volatility is, because it's arguably one of, the, one of those words where the definition is kind of unique from its typical connotation. And volatility in capital markets is, is the degree to which something, and we'd be talking about like the price of a stock or an index, deviates from its mean over a given time frame. Okay, it's a mathematical calculation. And in that context, volatility is non-directional. But in reality, the, the way most people experience it, they typically associate volatility with downside market moves, right? Wouldn't you kind of agree, Patrick? Yes, I would, yeah. To, so, to a retail but, trader, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Myself included. They're, they're professionals, right? You, you don't, you think about just this past month, like the, the month of August in the S&P 500. The index was up 7%, but you don't have a whole lot of people saying, wow, that was a super volatile month. But that's a highly unusual uh, move for an index over whatever, 21 trading days, right? Now, over the past six months, which is, I think, how you how you framed it, we've kind of seen it all as far as uh, volatility is concerned. The, the sell-off in late February and early March, not that anybody has probably forgotten it, but it was vicious. The velocity of that move was arguably unprecedented. So um, not to rehash uh, difficult memories, but the S&P 500 lost about a third of its value over the course of pretty much a month. And then in, in the midst of that, there were three consecutive sessions where the S&P 500 had plus or minus 9% moves. That was the first time since the 30s that that occurred. Um, now, you, you referenced the VIX index at kind of the outset, and I'll reiterate that SIBO pioneered that index and that it's become a global bellwether for equity volatility. Well, in March, it had its highest closing value ever on the 16th at 82.69. And then directly to your point, SIBO's um, take on volatility, or at least through my perspective, is that it's a significant market risk for most investors. And as such, we've had people like John and his team work and introduce tools that allow people to, to potentially mitigate some or all of those risks over a given time frame, and that's incredibly empowering. Um, more kind of contemporaneously, like since that that real acute risk off of March, there's been a couple spats of volatility, but but very recently we've seen realized volatility, so so actual historical volatility move back to levels that we haven't seen since January, and like if I had to talk about what's interesting right now. The divergence 
between historical volatility measures, so short-term realized volatility, mm -hmm. and forward or expected volatility measures, which are backed out from option prices, like 30-day S&P 500 realized volatility is now below 10%. And despite that lack of realized volatility, one-month S&P 500 options are, are pricing with an implied volatility in the mid-20s. Mm -hmm. And those measures are typically much closer to one another. Um, the, the options will typically price in a little bit greater volatility than what we've seen on a realized basis. But that spread is very unusual from a historical standpoint. That's intriguing. And then last week, so we're recording this early September, end of August, uh, there were multiple days where the S&P 500 was up about 1% and the VIX index was higher on the day. Typically, there's a negative correlation there. So that was unusual. We see markets behaving unusual. It has been an unusual year throughout from a volatility perspective. And SIBO's uh, take to, to bring this back home is that there are ways to potentially offset some of that volatility risk. Yeah, and I think, I think the underlying importance of, of what you guys do is you articulate what a lot of people are feeling right now. Like, you know, they're looking, they sense something is is volatile or, or it's unprecedented. And you guys are supplying the actual numbers behind that almost assumption or gut feeling, right? I, I agree. I think um, at the risk of sounding a little cliche, like it, it, you, you need to be able to measure and track things to sort of understand them, understand them. Otherwise, it is just that gut intuition. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's more difficult to make an informed decision going on your gut. I'm not saying that that's necessarily wrong. Um, but if you have data, and that is something that, that the exchange offers out, I think it's much easier. I agree. I agree. John, I wanted to, you know, Kevin talked about or the breakdown in that correlation between stocks and the higher volatility. How do you think we wound up with that breakdown in the correlation? Um, so I, I, I think there's a, a couple of things that Kevin pointed out that are that are kind of extraordinary about the vault period. And, you know, most people, when they think about periods of high volatility in the equity markets, they just look at, you know, the standard deviation of, of price returns, um, especially during March. And that's that's the measure that they look at in terms of, you know, is this period extraordinary or not? I think Kevin was hitting at the idea that you could also compare, um, you know, an implied measure of volatility um, to the standard deviation of daily price returns of the SPX and get something like a volatility risk premium. And when he was saying like the VIX trading above 20 and SPX below 10, hints at that. Uh, the other thing that he, the other point that he made is, is that typically you see, you know, an inverse relationship between the level of the VIX and, um, you know, the price returns of the S&P 500. Thus, the, the VIX is going up when the S&P is going down. Right. Um, you know, you could look at other measures. Um, to, to kind of quantify things like that and what's what's causing, you know, um, an implied volatility to rise. 
at a time when the realized volatility is going down. I mean, certainly forefront in people's mind are going to be things like election risk and, and concerns about um, the, the election um, leading to elevated levels of implied volatility. Just somebody expecting, you know, higher standard deviations of price returns when the election event actually occurs. Um, you know, it's also the case that you can quantify volatility and in, in, in correlations in other ways as well. You know, most people divide the S&P 500 into sectors and they um, types of stocks, you know, growth stocks versus, um, um, you know, um, value stocks. And, you know, the relationship between the price returns of those stocks often drives things like correlation within the index and even the relationship of volatility um, between implied and realized itself. So you talked about a couple of events that are coming up in the in the next month or so. Navigating this potential volatility is kind of like the theme of, of 2020 so far. Yes, the market is pricing in more volatility to come. How does one prepare for that? And how does one utilize the tools that you guys offer to pre- not predict, but to prepare? Yeah, prepare. I'm going to go with what I originally said to prepare. Kevin, I'll give you yeah. that one. Okay. Um, well, taking a step back, I think investors that uh, are proactive, that to use your term, prepare, tend to be more successful. Now, I'm not giving investment advice, but really thinking through different scenarios. If things work out well, if the market doesn't do what I expect, like how will I behave? tends to uh, reward market participants over the long haul. Um, Now, specific to SIBO products and tools, the VIX index is probably the most frequently cited measure of forward-looking volatility. Now, we've already made that distinction between volatility that has occurred. It's a fairly simple calculation. The, The... Uh, volatility implied by option prices is forward-looking. And that's valuable, like any forecast is kind of valuable, not to to water this down too much, but I know I look at a weather app pretty regularly, right? Like if I'm planning to go on a run or back before pandemics when I used to travel, I might look at, at what I might expect to see if I'm going someplace else. And sort of in that vein, the VIX index will give kind of the the world of investors a forecast for potential future volatility, and it updates regularly. That's super useful. Now, uh, it's it's not infallible. Like any forecast, it could be off base. It could change quickly. But I think, and, and pardon multiple cliches here, my mom used to say something like, forewarned is forearmed and that 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 ability to to think through scenarios is something that i think fix gives a quantifiable measure to um and it seems to be signaling the potential for volatility in and around the election 
as well as potentially into 2021. Now, the S&P 500 here and now at all time highs and technology doing exceptionally well has been pricing in an economic recovery. But the options markets are pricing in arguably more uncertainty than normal, given those markets at all time highs. And I think that's valuable information in and of itself, whether people trade options or not, just being aware of that reality, I think, is empowering. Okay. And now you talked about you know, the specific months. It says here, it looks like I'm looking at upward bumps in, vol- in implied volatility for SPX options expiring around November. Are the VIX futures signaling that similar uncertainty around or after November? You want me to take a stab at that first and then John can fill in the gaps if I've left something out? Yeah, that sounds good. Um, that is the case. There is is a relationship between VIX futures and S&P 500 index options. Um, I, I mentioned I work in education and I think maybe it's beneficial to take a step back and to define term structure, which is something that most equity traders are unfamiliar with. And, and I was unfamiliar with it until I was exposed to, uh, to commodity trading. Mm-hmm. Um, because in equities, the kind of spot market dominates that trading. So Apple is like right around 135, whether you're buying a stock or trading options in March of next year, right? I'm kind of just picking yes. uh, a time frame. Mm-hmm. But futures-based trading and and VIX or tradable volatility tools are futures-based. Futures-based trading is, is unique from that kind of spot market. And futures price differently depending on their expiration, maturity, duration. So if you think about crude oil, crude oil for September and December delivery are not priced identically. And similarly, VIX futures have distinct levels for trading that are independent of spot VIX. And spot VIX is not tradable. Understanding that is really, really important, right? Like indexes are tools for measurement, but they're not tradable. So term structure will refer to the uh, a plot or a visual of the prices at different maturities, at different expiries. And if you could picture a graph um, that slopes upward from what lower left to upper right, that's how most futures uh, term structure typically looks. It's typically called contango. And you have higher futures values or contract prices the further out in time. Well, right now, the highest VIX futures contract value is October. And it's important to keep in mind that October VIX futures look forward 30 days from their expiry in mid-October. So that forward-looking element, that time frame, will encompass the November election. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. Okay, that's important to understand. Um, And the October futures, last I looked, were trading around 33 and a half. That level, when you kind of do some math and back it out, implies an up or down range of kind of like 
roughly 9% during the November cycle. That is unusual. Now it stands to, uh, time will only tell whether that's actually realized, but those forward volatility measures don't fall off very significantly after October, which is also interesting. So if you look out to March of 2021, those VIX futures are right around 28. And in a more typical environment, which 2020 has not been, mm -hmm. longer dated VIX futures typically taper off or flatten out right around 20, which again, so hopefully tying this big picture element together is right around that historical uh, uh, average uh, mean for, for broad-based equity volatility. Um, so there's a relationship there. And right now, the entire term structure is in the mid-20s or higher. So the translation is that there's the potential for volatility to remain elevated for quite some time. And I think that there's both risk and opportunity inherent in that assumption, depending on one, how you're positioned, and, and then two, what actually transpires. And, and I think that's very important for a retail investor to know because I think if you were just to remain glued to a news cycle, you would think, oh, once November hits, there's going to be this huge smoothing out of everything and there's going to be this return to normalcy. Or once you know December 31st hits and it's 2021, there's going to be this return to normalcy. That's simply not what the VIX is telling us. John, do you do you want to you know add to that? Yeah, and I think you know when you look at the elevated level of the VIX, even some of the longer dated VIX futures or some of the longer dated measures that we have for VIX, we calculate the VIX by maturity as well. So you could look at SPX option implied volatility versus. Um, a calculation of the VIX for the term structure. Um, and you see the same thing that, that Kevin was, was talking about. And you could also kind of decompose the idea as to where that elevated level of the VIX is coming from. Um, I don't know at the risk of complicating the discussion a little bit more beyond Kevin's explanation of term structure. There's also a concept in the options markets that's typically referred to as skew. And what people are talking about in terms of skew is the idea that the implied volatility by strike price in options varies as well. Mm -hmm. And it's typically higher for out-of-the-money puts than it is for out-of-the-money calls. Yes. So the graph would look downward sloping from left to right. Um, and if you look at the VIX and try and decompose the, the elevated VIX into what are the components that are causing it, a heightened skew or a heightened level of skew is one of the bigger contributors. And the way that I would explain that to, to equity investors is the idea that, you know, when people have a high demand for puts, out of the money puts, they're hedging, mm -hmm. um, they tend to bid up those prices. So one of the things that you can interpret that as is, is that the level of demand for hedging downside risk in the S&P 500 is elevated. Yeah, that makes perfect sense, actually. Um, and, and I think a lot of options traders that follow this this podcast would recognize that and, and, and correlate that. Um, so I had a, 
a, a, a random question I wanted to throw in. I'm looking at now one of the charts you sent over. The VIX index is used as a barometer for market uncertainty. And it looks back since 2000, uh, various spikes. I'm looking at 2008 financial crisis, 80.86, uh, 82.69 for the COVID-19 pandemic. Senior uh, VP uh, strategist Todd Salamone writes in his Monday morning outlook, he will cover a lot of times and say, you know, if, if a VIX is trading at 80, and you'll notice that's half its half its lows from the May 2010 flash crash. Is that a correlation that you guys look at when like a half a closing high or double a closing low? And is that a way that someone can look at a long-term chart and start to kind of map out where this could be going? I'll take a stab at that and then John could fill in a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, I think your colleague, just to to reiterate, does an outstanding job sort of uh, giving market insight. And I think that there's a natural inclination on the part of investors to want to look at charts to uh, discern or glean where there might be interesting levels, levels of support or potential resistance. Um, I would caution uh technical analysis, and maybe I'm interpreting this wrong, but I, I, I wouldn't probably apply the same degree of technical analysis to a VIX index chart as I might something else. No, that's, that's interesting. That's there's, something that I was wondering. Like, I, you know, they're not necessarily the same. So I it, it was wondering if that's something a retail investor should look out for. So, I might have a slightly different take than Kevin. Not that I would say that it's technical analysis, but one of the things that I think is always interesting to look at is comparing levels of the VIX to levels of the S&P 500. And by that, I mean, you know, on days when the S&P 500 might hit an annual high or hit a new high level historically, what was the level of VIX on that day? Right, um, yes. And, you know, one of the interesting things that that highlights is, you know, it highlights, you know, cycles within the, the, the broader market in general, right? I mean, when you look at um, the S&P level today and how high it is, and you look at the relatively high level of VIX in the, in the mid-20s, um, you know, we haven't seen things like this since um, 2000 when it was, you know, this broad tech bubble, right? And one of the things that that's pointing to, I guess I would tie it back to that skew um, um, reference that I was making earlier is, is that, um, you know, people, uh, investors, the way I'd interpret that is, is that investors um are buying puts with the idea that they feel like the market high it, it, it carries with it a, a good deal of risk. Okay. Yeah. Well said. Well said. Um, okay. I'm about to wrap up here. Uh, so we talked about 2021 and, and how we are anticipating this continued volatility. Um, do you want to just close with any concluding thoughts on what you're seeing and, and, and kind of looking and watching at for the next, I'd say, six to 12 months 
Uh, John, you can start. I have a fascination with developing new product. I mean, that's what I do at SIBO. So one of the things that I spend a lot of time on right now is the idea of um, being able to measure uh, relationships and correlation within the markets as well. I tend to focus on the S&P 500, given, you know, the, the products that we trade mm-hmm. and the cash settled options on the S&P 500. So we publish an index right now that's the implied correlation of the S&P 500 that I'm working on revamping. But I think that it, it has some interesting things to say about um, market conditions as well. I mean, if you look at one month implied correlation of the S&P 500, it's relatively low at 24%. And, you know, I think that gets picked up in the idea that there's a kind of disconnect in the way certain stocks are behaving. I I spoke about growth and value earlier, but you also have the idea of stocks like Apple and Tesla and reaching the, you know, market valuations that they do. When you look at um, other stocks within the index, the performance of those stocks and the correlation to the stocks like Apple and Tesla isn't um, as strong as it once was. I mean, if I look at the realized correlation of the of the stocks within the S and P five hundred, it's actually running at less than five percent. Oh, so, um, okay. you know, that's a um, an interesting number right now. That's a one month measure that I was referring to. Mm-hmm. But um, that that level of correlation is pretty um, extraordinary as well, um, and I think it just points to, you know, when Kevin was talking about our, our pension for developing indexes that, that describe what's happening within the S&P 500. Um, that's what I spend a lot of time focused on and, and, and looking at those levels. I think they say something about um, the, the valuation, relative valuations of equities within the 500. That is fascinating. Um Mine is going to probably be a little bit more commonplace. One, first and foremost, thank you for for having us both. We enjoy these opportunities to sort of uh, explain the the tools that that market participants have at their disposal and and explain the potential utility. So one thing that that I will likely spend some time working to further that understanding over the next year is a, uh, a mini S&P 500 index option product. So oh. the ticker there is XSP, X-Ray Sam Paul. And we have spoken at length uh, on this call about the broad S&P 500. And many of your listeners are probably familiar with and possibly trade options on SPY, which is an ETF proxy for the S&P 500. Yep. Um, it's one-tenth the size of the big S&P 500. Well, so too is XSP. It's also one-tenth the size of the big, but it's an index option product. And many people are still unfamiliar with this alternative. Now, you, you have to make the best decision for yourself, and I am not giving advice, but there are potential benefits um, to XSP vis-a-vis SPY. So it's an index option product, meaning it's European styled. There's no early exercise or assignment risk, which is not the case with SPY options. SPY pays a dividend and there's the potential, like if you're short some call spread, that that might be assigned early ahead of that dividend to capture it if you're short uh, an in-the-money call. Um, so uh, style is different. 
XSP options are cash settled, like other index options, whereas SPY delivers into the underlying shares of the ETF. Now, this isn't the case for everyone, but many of the option traders that I speak to want to trade options, not really uh, the underlying shares. Now, if you want delivery, then SPY is probably the appropriate vehicle. But uh, if you're an option trader, XSP might be maybe more appropriate. And then the, the last thing, and there is a huge caveat with this because I'm, I'm, I'm uh, working in education, not consultancy, and certainly not a tax guy, but typically index options are considered 1256 contracts uh, before the eyes of the IRS and before your listeners go to sleep. There are potential <laughs> tax benefits associated with 1256 contracts. So that's something that they would have to educate themselves on. Short answer is I will spend time sort of pounding the pavement or talking to people about the benefits of index options and the mini S&P 500 products, specifically XSP. Thank you again for having us. Yeah, that's awesome. I hope I can help too with, with this podcast. Um, do you guys want to give just a quick maybe just like a website where someone can learn more. You want to plug any particular source. I, I just want to give you guys the, the floor to, to promote that. Have a couple more minutes left. So whatever you got. SIBO has a, a wealth of information available. We are making a very conscious effort to revamp a lot of it. But if you go to the, the primary site, CBOE, Dot com. You can navigate from there, whether your interest is, you know, European equities or FX or more the, the bread and butter index options, volatility products, correlation and dispersion measures. It's all there. And then if there are specific questions, it is quite literally my job to help people clarify and understand those things. So don't be apprehensive to, to ask questions. There's language that's unique in this business, and it doesn't happen overnight. So uh, just to reiterate, the forewarned is forearmed, and <laughs> understanding these tools is uh, uh, absolute prerequisite to utilizing them. So that would be my, my brief take. Well said. Well said. Well, I'm... You know, it, it's just me, but I think you guys lived up to the lofty billing that I gave you. So thank you so much for coming on. Could not appreciate that enough. Um, maybe one last little question. Why is Chicago pizza so inferior to New York pizza? John? <laughs> I don't think I agree with the premise. Um, the framing is, is interesting. Is my favorite. I tried, yeah. to, I tried to trip you up there. <laughs> Come to Chicago uh, when things get normal, and we'll go to Pequod's, which is somewhere in the middle, and I would be happy when I'm on the East Coast for you to get me a New York slice. Okay, sounds good. Or a New Haven slice. Or New Haven, since yes. Since I'm in Connecticut, yeah. There or we go. New Haven. No argument there. Sounds like we have a deal. Uh, thanks again, guys. Uh, stay safe, and we'll talk soon, maybe. Thank you again. All right, take care. All right, thank you.